Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined here by Dr. Peter Lee, our dean of students and professor of Old Testament, and Dr. Tommy Keene, our academic dean and professor of New Testament studies. And we're going to continue on in our series that we've been kind of dabbling in. We, we, we take some side paths into other topics over the course of the summer, but we keep coming back around to this series that we are currently in, which is reading guides to biblical books. And the idea of this is that we want to give a nice, concise, succinct reading strategy on how you, if you're teaching through a book, preaching through it, or maybe just going to it in your devotions, how you can approach the book as a whole. It really gives us a chance to talk about the general themes and shape and structure of a book. And it's also just fun to talk about how we read scripture and how we think about it and what's what we found to be useful in terms of interpreting it. These are, of course, ancient books. And uh, you can't pick it up and read it like you might read the newspaper. There's there's a whole cultural shift that's both cultural and chronological that we have to step through and be aware of uh, reading these books. And so I love hearing how other people are approaching that task. One thing that we're always struck by when we're reading ancient books is how different that world is of the of the text. And yet one of the things I'm really struck by as well, you know, contrary to 20th century biblical scholarship that's really focused on the difference of that world, I'm also struck by how similar the world is. You know, you go back there and I read the book of Judges, which is the book we're going to talk about today, and I'm struck by the strangeness of it. You have people making vows as they're going into battle involving who will come through their gates and and people using uh, the bone of a donkey to kill someone and lighting tails on fire. And uh, there's a lot going on there that I say, this is a very different world. And yet, interestingly, kind of like watching a movie today, that's a, a, a lens into a different world. I also realize there's a whole lot in common. I get it. I, I get why they respond to things the way they do. I get their emotional life. I, I get... Uh, the, the mixedness of their characters. They're not a hundred percent bold and courageous and they're not a hundred percent villains. Uh, they're, they're rounded characters to use a literary term. Um, so as we're doing this, as we're looking at books like the book of judges, we want to talk about both the difference and the similarity with our life today. So let's go ahead and start off with that. Dr. Lee, I'm going to throw it to you because you teach the class that includes judges when you're on the DC campus. I've taught it before on other campuses, but you teach it in the DC campus. So we need to give you, uh, you know, first shot at talking about how you approach the book of judges. How would you advise someone? Maybe let's put it that way. How would you advise someone who's approaching the book of judges for the first time? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, I, I think the way I would encourage someone to start is kind of the way that we've been, uh, uh, approaching a, a reading strategy for previous books that we've done and kind of do an overall structure, you know, kind of the organization of the book. And, and Judges actually is is very nice and, and real easy. Uh, you have uh, roughly 
uh, Judges chapter 1 to about 3, 6, I believe, chapter 3, verse 6, right around there. That's um, an introduction to the book of Judges. Uh, it's sort of two different introductions there, like chapter 1 to 2, 5, and then 2, 6 to 3, 6. Um, uh, one, uh, and, and so it gives you a nice overview of sort of the uh, the introduction to the book. Then from chapter 3, 7 to the end of chapter 16, so that's the big body of the book of Judges, is where it goes into each judge narrative. So starting with Othniel, then to Ehud, then Deborah, and so forth. Um, uh, uh, and then it ends with uh, Samson, uh, and that would be the second section. That's the big body of the book of Judges, obviously. Uh, it ends in chapter 17 to 21 with two, uh, arguably two of the most uh, depressing, darkest narratives yeah. uh, in the in the entire uh, Old Testament. And so it, it starts off fairly positive with um, uh, with uh, uh, sort of the uh, uh, continuing success of the Joshua generation and the victories that the Israelites were winning as they entered into the land of Canaan and that initial period of conquest. That kind of continued on for a little bit in in Judges chapter one, but by the end of the book, uh, Israel is, is is pretty far gone. Um, uh, they're uh, worshiping idols. They are uh, infighting, so they are pretty much in a state of civil war. They're no longer fighting Canaanites. They are fighting each other. Uh, uh, the worship has gone chaotic. Uh, the moralism of the land has gone in uh, has become immoral. Um, it ends pretty negatively. Yeah. And it's one of those books too. It's kind of like I've watched movies like this where you get to the end and you kind of have a hard time remembering what, what it was like in the beginning. Right. And then you go back and you watch again, you go, wow, I can really see that, that arc that you just talked about. We start off and things are going pretty well. And then like the proverbial frog, frog in boiling water, I'm not sure who's boiling all these frogs, but there's this, yeah, you know. So anyways, there's this frog in the boiling water. It slowly just kind of gets worse and worse and worse until at the end, it really could give a modern day slasher flick a run for its money. I mean, it's a pretty dark, dark place. And you have to really try hard to remember back what it was like with the Joshua generation. Yeah. Yep. So there's this, there's this spiraling down. That's one of the structures that we see, right? The grand arc is the spiraling down. And you have the two intros and the two epilogues, which are kind of mirror-like, right? right? You have these two prologues about the Joshua generation and then the second generation. You get two explanations in that prologue as to why, there's two prologues as to why there are still Canaanites in the land. One explanation is that they've got iron chariots. And then the other one is that the Lord left them there to test them. Right. And... Whenever I teach this, I point out, so which one's the true one, right, to the students? And they, they've had me enough that they know that the answer is both of them, right? Of course, because one is giving you a natural explanation and one is telling you how God as the primary cause, right, we might say, is operating behind the scenes. But then you have these two epilogues that we can come back and talk about them later. But it raises the question, so what about that middle section then that you talked about with all the judges does that have a structure? Is it just worse upon worse upon worse? Or have you noticed any yeah. structure in that? Yeah, the uh, each judge narrative from Othniel to Samson. So that middle uh, section, the bulk of the book of Judges, 
and, and this is really one of the um, uh, things that we have, uh, uh, one of the outstanding things about the Book of Judges follows a, each narrative kind of follows a literary cycle. So it starts off with Israel and sin. Um, and then uh, they are oppressed by a foreign power. Then Israel cries out to the Lord. The Lord answers by sending a judge, a deliverer, a savior of some sort. Israel's liberated. And then the land, uh, and then the land has, uh, has rest. I think I'm forgetting something in there. But basically, that's sort of the cycle. Yeah, the, something they're like liberated that. by the judge who the Lord gives right. them. And then there's a period of time of rest. And then they fall into complacency. And, and then it, uh, the next judge is introduced, and they're back into sin. They cry out to the Lord. The Lord sends a judge. The judge saves them. The land has rest. Then the next judge, and then they're back into sin, and it just starts uh, over and over again. So it is kind of a nice cycle to see. And in fact, uh, when you get to um, uh, the last uh, couple of judges, uh, particularly Samson, if you look for those literary elements in the narrative, what you find is that in the Samson narrative, they're missing a few, like the land doesn't end in rest. There mm -hmm. is no crying out of Israel for uh, the Lord. There is no repentance, in other words. Um, and there you have an example of where life is um, imitated in art, I guess, as a, as a matter of speaking. The, the breakdown of the literary structure is a reflection of Israel's sort of spiritual decline and the breakdown of their spiritual um, uh, state uh, before the Lord. So when you read those uh, cycles um, or each judge narrative from Othniel on, that's sort of what you want to look for. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, each narrative gets longer with Othniel. It's like, I, I can't remember, like five verses. So it's very succinct, very compact, very terse, uh, to the point. But when you get to, uh, Samson, it's like, uh, three or four chapters long. So it's, it progressively is getting longer. Mm -hmm. Uh, that does seem to be, by the way, a literary, uh, thing within the ancient world. So whenever you have a sequence of narratives like this, it starts off brief and it tends to send, oh, and it gets longer. So it's not just the Bible. Uh, you, you know, you see that in Genesis one, you see that in Judges, you see that in um, the Epic of Gilgamesh and other narratives as well. I really think that's helpful as a reading strategy. That that noticing that pattern early on and then seeing kind of almost like a theme and variation repetition of the pattern and looking for how does the judge fit what's what's added what's new so you know of course we get deborah in one of the cycles and that in that introduces a wonderful hermeneutical challenge um and those those new things those iterations on the pattern highlight important aspects about each judge but also you know to, to your point peter the unraveling of the the narrative that things things be enter into increasingly chaotic space, um, which hints at that main theme, that main idea. You can see that unraveling at a larger kind of quasi-meta narrative if you see um, the way that each judge is described. So Othniel is an ideal judge. There seems to be nothing wrong with him. His narrative follows each thing succinctly, perfectly. Um, you get to Gideon, and now Gideon is sort of transitional. You know, mm -hmm. he's he sort of epitomizes the I believe, but help me in my unbelief. You know, he kind of trusts in the Lord, but but then again, he seems to doubt and needs signs and things of this nature. He gets it, and then he just asks for more signs. Uh, so he sort of trusts, but he doesn't really trust. Uh, but when you get to Samson, now you've got uh, the problem judge. So you've got the ideal judge and um, 
Othniel, the transitional judge in Gideon, the problematic judge in Samson. And so you see how by the end of the book of Judges, the, the judges, the leadership structure is no longer a solution to the problem. Right. They are part of the problem. Um, and, and it's such a powerful way of crafting a story. And I think some people think, well, really, would these authors have been that sophisticated in their rhetorical or literary style? But this idea of using a cycle and you go through the cycle and the author tells you on the front end in chapter two, he says in chapter two, verse 14, the Lord was incensed at it. Okay, 13, they forsook the Lord and worshiped the Baal and the Ashtaroth. The Lord was incensed at Israel and hand them over to foes. He surrendered them to their enemies. Um, in all their campaigns, the hand of the Lord was against them. Uh, they then called out to him. Then the Lord raised up chieftains or judges, okay, who delivered them from those who plundered plunder them, okay. But they did not heed their chieftains either. You know, so you have this kind of intro to the cycle, and in each case, Othniel to Ahud. You know, as you keep going, they develop and. Each time the story's told, there's new elements added to it that heighten this disruption, this this entropy, moral or, or the theological entropy that the country is going through. I even think I, I think they're they're so sophisticated. I think Othniel is almost ideal. I think he falls just short because he doesn't do it out of his own faithfulness. Uh, and and Ehud is just. Ahud's great victory is marred by the f fact that he's a liar and he sneaks out through the toilet. Okay. More on that later, maybe. So I, I think, you know, it's not moral problems, but it's just a little bit of a hint. It's kind of like, watch this space. You know, um, these aren't going to be perfect people. They're not going to be Joshua's, you know, Joshua was just, he was the ideal, right? It, it is really interesting. The, uh, I have said that, uh, you know, the book of judges, given the, I dare, I don't know. Well, okay, I guess I'll say it is um, uh, given the uh, the tribal tensions internally within Israel at the time, you can make a case that the book of Judges is the most uh, tribally political of all of the biblical books in terms of what the, the interplay. So you have a very strong uh, pro-Judah element. You know, Judah's winning everything. Um, Caleb is sort of a living legend at that point who is a Judean. Mm-hmm. Uh, Othniel is from Judah. Uh, uh, so you have this strong sense of a pro. Now, by being pro-Judah, the book of Judges is really trying to be pro-David. This is all set up for the Davidic monarchy. So by being pro-Judah, they're pretty pushing for uh, pro, uh, for David. But then you get some anti-Benjamin anti motifs yeah. with Ehud, as you mentioned. That Yeah, I think you're right. I think Ehud's escape was through some latrine. It wasn't yeah. out some portico or... So, and, so can you explain uh, that to our listeners at home who say, no, he climbed down the lattice work? Yeah, it's it's tricky. The the Hebrew is a little tricky there, truthfully. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, uh, the the narrative that you have there um, is judge, as Ehud is making an escape doesn't it. If you think through the logic of it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. He locks the door after he commits the murder. The guards think he's relieving himself, the king. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it just doesn't, if you if you think through it logically, you, you see that it doesn't quite work out. The, the narrative seems to be dischronologized, in other words, mm -hmm. to kind of portray Ehud 
as going escaping down a, a latrine. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's I think it's satirical. It's which would have been a considered high technology in the king's house right. that he had this hole that went down to a drainage ditch that you could use to climb out. Yeah, it's sort of the Shawshank's redemption, right? That's that's right. There we go. Maybe this is a good time to talk about uh, the humor or often dark humor, but specifically like the use of irony in the book. One that, That's another kind of reading strategy that I find very helpful. And, you know, you, you expect the Bible to be so serious all the time. And this, this is a serious book and serious themes, but they, but often there's a point being made by the kind of the, the, the ironic commentary that's, in the seams and, and sometimes hard to notice. I, I'm thinking of Gideon too here. You know, I think it's, it's there in Ehud, but Gideon, you know, I will not be king. Don't make me king. I'm not your king. And then he names his son Abimelech. My father is king. And, and he says, and he, I want a fancy suit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Right. Yeah, right. After getting rid of Baalism, now he kind of yeah. revives it by, by building, uh, making it Ehud. And it's, and it's, there's a kind of humor there but there's also a point being made. Right. No, I think you're totally right. I, I, you know, I think, I, you know, there's actually a lot of that in the Bible. I think mm-hmm. when you read Ehud, the, the second judge, and you're reading this, his escape, and if you're not laughing, well, you're not laughing probably because it's it's kind of mis Cringe laughing. You should be cringe yeah. laughing through. Yes, yeah, you're cringe laughing. You're kind of chuckling a little bit. And if you're not laughing, you're missing the point. And yeah. it, it's not Ehud that we're, um, uh, laughing at it, it's it's. It, I mean, yes, it is Ehud we're laughing at, but the the narrative again is trying to be. You know, Ehud is the only Benjaminite judge. the The satire is against Benjamin. Mm-hmm. So, if you read the Book of Judges in the context of the Davidic monarchy, the Book of Samuel mentions that David, throughout his entire career, had to fight off pro Saul elements. So, one way that you could see the Book of Judges. Uh, as being read is, what you want is kind of a king who's a Genean, like you read in the book of Judges, who was successful, victorious for the most part. You don't want a judge like uh, uh, like Ehud, who's from Benjamin, because mm-hmm. look 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 at this narrative. Yes. Yeah. So why He's also left-handed, which is just creepy in the ancient world. Yeah. You know. No, actually, it honestly is. He's. It's why pointed out. I mean, it's part of the narrative, but it is. There's this kind of like he's not one of the normal guys, you know. There's this kind of thing in the background. I keep thinking about Ehud now as Andy Dufresne, <laughs> like at standing at the at the fords of the you know the uh, the fords of the Jordan, you know, with his hands out and the rain falling on his face after this <laughs> narrow escape. Yeah. So <laughs> the the irony continues throughout the book. I mean, we we can talk about we should talk about all of this. As a part of this, I think help keeping that structure in mind, there are these cycles that are retold that are degrading down into this kind of entropy. I think there is a kind of centrality to Gideon for the point that you just made, uh, Tommy, you know, that after Gideon, it's not subtle how the kings right. are, how the judges are failing. It now becomes obvious, right? There's this kind of before Gideon, they were better. They were more good than they were bad. After Gideon, it's kind of a mess, yeah. right? As seen by the fact that the first villain, you know, leading up to Gideon, all the villains are Moabites and and uh, Canaanites and whatnot. After Gideon, 
who are the villains. The first villain is Abimelech, another yeah. Bene Israel, you know, another yeah. son of Israel. And he's now the one who is oppressing the people. You know, things have gone from worse, right? To, or better to worse. And so there's not actually a judge in the Abimelech story. Or if there is, the judge is the unnamed woman who throws the stone, right? right. And kills him. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, that it's a, it's showing you that things have gotten worse. So there's a centrality to Gideon. And Gideon does kind of, I think, embody probably the unbelief or the mixed belief of Israel. His whole story, as you pointed out, is a story of a guy being given every reason to believe and yet constantly finding reasons not to believe right he's he sees an angel okay he he uh you know he's given the victory he has this whole fleece episode where he puts out the fleece and he goes well let's do a control set let's do it the other way now let's flip it around. <laughs> yeah so then he he wants to see it the other way the lord just keeps in his lack of faith keeps blessing him and even his little omens that he makes up but notice he doesn't actually believe the lord until the last sign which is that he sneaks down to the Midianite camp and he hears the Midianite tell of his dream. So it's the pagan dream, the pagan's dream, the Midianite's dream. That's the thing that finally convinces him that the Lord will give him the victory, you know, and it shows this kind of, uh, you know, this just real struggling to trust in the Lord alone. Right. Which is, which is the problem, right? The Lord, if, if you're right, Peter, cause we're going to, we got to get that too. This is all political setup for David the man after God's own heart, right? The one who loves the Lord is God with all of his heart, soul, and strength. Gideon showing you what you don't want or that the way that the, the, the judges fell short, we need a different kind of king because he's so mixed, right? Everything he does is mixed and kind of has a big asterisk next to it because he can't really just trust. So one of the themes that's kind of highlighted early, this is judges, I believe, uh, one of the themes that's highlighted early in Judges is that all of this came about to teach Israel war. Uh, that one of God's purposes was to teach Israel warfare in in all of this. And I've always I've I've heard that preached in in churches and things like that. To and and, and the shift that is made is now we need to talk about the spiritual warfare uh, that we're engaged in in life. And and Judges is kind of this mirror for. Uh, spiritual warfare for the Christian life. What do y'all think about that? Legit move? How do we think about that theme of teaching Israel war? Have you ever heard that? I, I wonder what that's based on. I know it does say all this happens because the Lord is testing Israel. Maybe this is a distraction. No, it's it's an interesting idea of warfare. I'm trying to think, does it actually say? Um, I should look it up. That, uh, it does say... Uh, Yes, I guess I'm going to try to answer. It, it does say um, that in in Judges, uh, in chapter 3, I believe, where it says that the Lord did providentially allow the Canaanites to remain to train the next generation yeah. in war. And now, again, I think the the strategy and the, and the reading strategy here the, has to be tempered here. Uh, this is the time when Israel is a theocracy. The land is holy. The people is holy. The Canaanites are not holy. Uh, the the mandate for the Israelites to rid the land of the Canaanites, to go to war against them and rid them, is because of the nature of the typological kingdom of the land. This is a holy land. And, and remember, the land is described 
uh, from a biblical theological. This is kind of stemming outside of the book of Judges a little bit, but it applies during this time that the land is sort of a macro geographical temple. Um, mm -hmm. Only holiness can be within that temple. This is where the Lord dwells with his people. The Canaanites are not holy. Uh, the, the priests in the, in the Old Testament would have uh, protected vigorously the holiness of the temple. The Israelites are called to do the same thing as a kingdom of priests. And so they are called to uh, exile the Canaanites uh, from the land. So that's the nature of the, of the war that we're talking about here. That obviously doesn't apply in the context of the church. The church is not a theocracy. We don't live where we have a visible kingdom of God in the same way that that there is in the was in the Old Testament. Having said that, though, uh, there is a uh, I, you know this idea of of a spiritual warfare that we are engaged with unbelief does seem to me uh, analogous and and does seem to work. In fact, you could say that in the book of, and as long as we put it in that context, I think the application is sound. But the war is not is against unbelief. It's it's what Paul talks about in. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10 against uh, wicked and illogical and secular arguments um, and things of that nature. That's uh, what we are called to to engage in. We, we yeah. In other words, if we don't battle with a sword, we battle with the gospel. Yeah, it's interesting how Paul will often use warfare language. Ephesians 6 comes to mind in, in battles against the demonic forces and things like that. Um, so, so the New Testament justifies that move of seeing a spiritual side, this, a spiritual fulfillment of the kind of warfare idea. I wonder though, you know, it, it's an intriguing, that uh, that, that verse in, in, Joshua, in Judges 3, it's an intriguing verse because, you know, God is teaching Israel war, but then as we see in, for example, the Gideon narrative, and as we see throughout Judges, not as the nations wage their war. Like the point isn't, no, you, you really need to you need chariots of, of, of iron, right? Um, that's not the training they get. You don't get this training montage of, okay, now we've got to learn how to, how to do battle, um, shoot arrows straighter. It's, no, the, the, what God wants from Gideon is faithfulness. Yeah. He wants Gideon to trust his 300 soldiers because God is doing the battle. Yeah. yeah. Don't you, Deborah's battle cry, don't you know the Lord goes before you right. kind of thing. Yeah, the... It's interesting. Yeah, that that verse, you know, I think it, um, it's Lalamdam Milchama. I saw you looking at the Hebrew. Yeah. And the, it could mean, you know, it's interesting. I always took that to mean, and the JPS translates it uh, to experience war, hmm. you know. Um, but I think to teach war, you know, to, to, that idea, what does it mean to be involved in Cherem? And he makes the distinction between this generation and the ones who had known the previous wars of the conquest. So it's tying it to the conquest battles. Yeah. Which again is to tie it to faith, yeah. right? Yeah, jo absolutely. Joshua, Moses, they were to lead Israel, not with force of arms, although arms were necessary, but by faith. And, the, and war in the Old Testament is always is always spiritual battle too. So it's not just a type. It's actually, there's always spiritual battle in, in you know, when you're battling, when you're dealing with the princes of Persia, you're dealing with the spiritual entities mm -hmm. behind it. You know, but absolutely, I think now saying, now that we are not in the theocratic nation of Israel, but in the restoration kingdom of Jesus Christ, um, 
you see the advancement of the kingdom in a different way. It's in the spiritual way that Christ prescribed. And, but does that mean that these same dynamics don't exist? I'd say, no, I think the same dynamics do exist. You have people with mixed belief, you know, I felt the temptation of Gideon to believe when I see a non-believer say something that kind of affirms mm. my faith to have my faith boosted because it's kind of like, you know, a third party, you know, uh, uh, you know, affirmed it or something like that's the temptation of Gideon. Right. And what does the Lord say? He's saying no trust because my word says it. Yeah. The, this, uh, training in war, in the book of judges is is its training of the next generation in war and uh in addition to the uh the training of war in the book of judges in the context of the book of judges what's even more important perhaps is this idea of the training up of the next generation which is a very important deuteronomic theme yeah. in fact you see the shadow of deuteronomy and you really can't read judges outside of De deuteronomy uh it's a in, in many ways, you're seeing kind of Israel's history uh, working out as a commentary, uh, elaborating uh, the book of Deuteronomy in terms of the uh, laws of what they are not supposed to do. Uh, they're doing all of that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the uh, it, and in fact, in the, the problem in the book of Judges is that they didn't do this. They didn't continue right. this war. They, they began to become like Canaanites. Uh, and so the Lord had to treat his own covenant people like Canaanites with these little mini exiles here and there, uh, restoration, then exiled again. You really kind of see the history of Israel, the macro history of Israel in micro forms with each kind of judge narrative. They sin, they're saved, they repent, uh, or they're exiled, they repent, and they're saved. And, and right. you see that kind of uh, cycling through to kind of tell, you know, get that message across to the Israelites. You know, you're reading this in exile. That's the, receipt, the generation receiving this. Um, this is actually a lesson I learned from our Scott Red here. This is a generation reading this. Uh, the message that is coming through in the book of Judges is it's multiform. And one of them is if you repent, the Lord will restore you. Look at what happened yeah. here in the book of Judges. Each little mini cycle is reinforcing mm -hmm. this type of idea. The reason why the book ends in such decay is because it's not because the Lord failed you. It's because you violated the covenant. This, this is what Deuteronomy said would happen. So it's yeah. happened. You're in exile for the same exact reasons. You violated Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy said this would happen. So it's happening here. But if you repent, the Lord will uh, restore you. And, yeah. and so you get that, um, uh, uh, you get that message. I don't think it's subtle. I think it's pretty darn yeah. clear that, uh, that uh, that has happened. The the training of the next generation, though, is is such a prominent theme. The Israelites not doing that. I'm always haunted. Really, I'm I am I am bothered uh, whenever I read Judges chapter two verses nine, ten, and eleven. That says that um, uh, that you know Joshua died, and that whole generation went to be with the Lord, <laughs> in a manner of speaking. Mm -hmm. Then there arose a new generation that didn't know the Lord nor anything that he had done for Israel. And I'm always startled by the fact that, you know, it, it, it really in, in one generation, this could happen. Right. I mean, it's yeah. such spiritual decay. I mean, just, they were just yeah. watching, you know, the entrance into the land, the, some of them probably have witnesses of the manna and the quail and the water from the rock in the wilderness. They, they just saw the d destruction of Jericho and, all of this business. They heard it from their parents. And they heard it from their parents, right. Yeah. 
But you now you there. have a generation that doesn't remember any of these things. The Passover gone, circumcision yeah. gone, you know, Israel, Egypt gone. I mean, which means they haven't amazing. they haven't seen the Lord deliver, and and that throws us back into Judges one through three, right? That they see the hand of the Lord say rescuing them from their enemies as a result of this these cycles. Yeah. yeah, it it really is like um, you know Scott, you mentioned earlier a just kind of a, a tinge of a critique towards Othniel, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I'm inclined to agree. I, I I as much as judges might be anti Benjamin, and kind of anti other tribal groups because the idea is where's kinship going to come from? It's not going to come from these tribes. It's going to come from Judah, but even in um, as pro Judah as uh, judges is, I I don't think it's a pristinely clear there is a subtle jab at Othniel there is a jab even at Caleb and 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 part of the critique is in trying to explain how in the world their children became so positive in one generation yeah the critique here is that the reason this happened is that the earlier generation as great as they were failed in that very strong Deuteronomic mandate they didn't train the next generation in the ways of the Lord. And as a result of this is a book of judges. I, Isaiah makes something about that, that there's that it's a, it's a subtle thread in the old Testament. Isaiah picks it up, but it's the thread that Joshua, Joshua's generation was great. And afterwards there were some serious problems. He does in Isaiah five where, where the Lord is talking about the land. You remember he says, I cleared it of stones. You know, that's the Karen warfare. I, I put a hedge around, I put my watchtower within the land, his, t- his temple. But then there's this interesting line. He goes, I planted it with choice seeds, right? What's that? Yeah. That's the Joshua generation, yeah. right? But what happened? The choice seeds that were supposed to have the best vintage ever. What did they spring up? Sour grapes. You know, so the generations that came after. Um, okay, so we're, we're hitting a lot of good themes. And one of them, I, just to take a little bit further on the Othniel thing, not to overplay this. I think it's a subtle hint that these are not going to be idealized characters. And if that's true, and this is really an argument for a Davidic reign, then that also indicates, just for the reader who hasn't thought about this too much, uh, that the author of Judges, who's bringing these stories together and compiling them, he knows how Samuel, the book of Samuel, is going to end, right? That the David himself is not going to be an ideal king. We're going to be looking for another, a son of David, which is how Samuel ends, right? Who is it going to be? Is it going to be Solomon? You know, but then we find no, Solomon's not the guy either. But David also shows himself to not be the ideal king. And that kind of lends itself to this argument that these histories that we're reading that include Joshua through Kings, um, accepting Ruth, are a part of a kind of grand narrative that have a, a, the same or a very similar theological perspective on things. And they do, I hate to say it, they do read really well together, right? Mm-hmm. Jo- Judges begins with a, re- a rehash of Joshua. Judges ends with uh, Judah being basically doing the right thing at the right time and Benjamin is a part of this terrible story that involves uh, being nearly wiped out, a rehash of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, in the town of Benjamin. They're nearly wiped out, and then they're repopulated through this mass kind of, uh, you know, sexual assault that happens. That's the that's Benjamin. So the next book opens up, and what do we have? 
we have these, uh, well, we have a rehash of judges. Remember Samuel's born in the time of the judges. Okay. And then we have these two competing Kings, mm-hmm. one's from Judah, one's from Benjamin. Yep. And the author seems to be saying, Judges tells us which one we should follow, right? right? We need to go back, right? We need to go back and see how did how did things fare for Benjamin? How did things fare for Judah? And and you're totally right. I think the you know the book of Judges ends with this sort of you know Israel in many ways at at a extremely arguably the lowest point. The exile was pretty bad, but other than the exile, this is about as low as they got. Right, and it really sets up the narrative that you know uh, the 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 last four chapters there ends with that uh, that very famous repetitive line uh, that yeah. everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. It really sort of presumes in if we just had a king, mm-hmm. a Judean king, not a Benjaminite king, yeah. and it sets up for the rise of David. And so David is introduced, and then you have this sort of massive letdown. Here, but the Book of Judges has been building up to David. Now we got it. But what do we have? We've got a, you know, a, a sexual assaulter, murderer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and how is this better yeah. than what we've got? Mm-hmm. It, it kind of now, if the Book of Judges is really part of the history of Israel that was written and received in the exile, you hear how the exilic community is reading. We are in exile by and large for multiple different reasons, and one of them is our the failure of good godly leadership. We haven't had it really. Yeah. Uh, Moses was okay, but he kind of collapsed. Look at the judges. Look at David. Look at Solomon and look at our kings. Um, but the promise of a godly king is a good promise. But what we need is the ideal David, the ideal Solomon. Yeah. And you could see that that sort of eschatological expectation building up during that exile period here and how even the book of Judges is part of that grander narrative that, uh, yeah, we need a Judean, but we need the ideal Judean. We haven't had that during mm-hmm. this time. Uh, Othniel was good, but not he wasn't it. You know, David was okay, but he clearly wasn't it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see how the Book of Judges is sort of part of that kind of ebb and flow of that that kind of messianic expectation that you see in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. And and you know th- that Judges is pro Judah. We don't read that as you know political propaganda we have to bring in that spiritual theological layer that you're getting at what why what's the two types that you know we have two types of kings that are presented for, to us the kind that will trust in chariots and horses and the ways of the world the the, the and the kind that will trust in god and, and bring back your your earlier point about the deuteronomic shape of judges you know deuteron the the, the pentateuch really sets us up uh, israel is to be a different kind of kingdom. It's to be God's kingdom. The the nations of the world, they are gonna all they are all the same. They all follow their own ways. But God's kingdom is to be different and it's got laws and a temple and uh, regulations that make it different and keep it different. And what Judges presents to us then is the gradual apostasy from that plan, from God's plan. I wonder if that's a good spot to bring Hebrews in. We were speculating earlier, you know, Hebrews is uh, the only real reference point in the New Testament to uh, judges. I uh, There might be a subtle allusion in Stephen's speech as well, um, but uh, it's, it's only it's only Hebrews that kind of holds up Gideon, etc., as a as models of faith, refers to the wilderness generation, 
and the judge's generation in Hebrews 3 and 4. And of course, Hebrews is intimately concerned with apostasy. Um, in the, in, uh, are you going to uh, hold fast to your confession? How do you do that? You do it by faith, by believing what God has told you and seeking that heavenly city. Just like you know, we get these this list of of heroes of the faith that that did it before before us, broken, wounded, uh, sometimes horrible people, and yet they trusted in the Lord, and as a result, they persevered in in their time. Yeah, I've heard that used to say, well, we shouldn't be reading, you shouldn't have such a jaundiced eye when you're reading these judges, because look at how well they're spoken of in Hebrews. Yeah. And it's created some, some, some arguable, I think, interpretations that are, that are legitimate. I think, you know, Gordon Hugenberger is known for making an argument that Samson may not be as bad as we think he is. And I, I, I take, I take his argument with, um, uh, with a lot of counsel because he's a great scholar. Um, I do think we can say that it reveals that there is a sophisticated understanding of humanity and human leadership in the scripture that you can pick out Samson, who, as we've just argued is maybe the worst of the judges. Okay. He's at least, he's at least got some anger issues and questionable (laughs) associations. Okay. Um, or Jephthah or Gideon. Yeah. And you can still say, look at how deeply flawed, tragically flawed these leaders are. How about David? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> look how tragically flawed these leaders are. And yet still recognize that the Lord is so gracious that according to his good pleasure, he will work and bring about his good purposes through even very tragically flawed leadership. And that's, that's something that's a little different. I think we want, you know, maybe in today's day and age, we see the flawed, um, you know, abusive leader and are like, that guy's got to burn. Right. And I get that. There's a time when that's the message that needs to be made, need to be highlighted. And that's in scripture too. Yeah. Right. Like what, a, you know, again, going back to Isaiah, what does Isaiah say about the uh, corrupt leadership of Jerusalem? You know, they don't get a pass. Okay. And yet we also have to recognize on the flip side of it, that there's no hero but Jesus, right? Um, and all the rest of us have got deep failures and deep flaws, and we shouldn't be surprised when we see that, even in people who are Christians, right? Even in people who have saving faith and, and show the fruit of the Spirit otherwise, we also shouldn't be surprised to see that the Lord is working through deeply flawed individuals. I think there's a, a profound encouragement there in Scripture, and, and a of you see the authenticity of scripture through that angle too. Like we don't have a, these, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, these are ancient stories. And a lot of times you, you read um, biblically adjacent ancient stories and it, it is hero worship. It is, these are not deeply flawed individuals. There is a presentation of the King that is uh, gilded and glorious and flawless. Um, And that's not what scripture gives us. It doesn't give us a flawless Moses it doesn't give us a flawless Abraham. We get pictures of of uh, men like Gideon who who are you know fifty fifty as it were. Um, and until we get to the hope of Christ, and and that's one of the things that the Old Testament is trying to 
cultivate in us, in, in Israel and in us, is that we need Jesus. And until Jesus enters into our world and into the history and brings about this new kingdom, we are going to be fractured, fragile, broken, exiled. And it's Jesus and his perfect faithfulness before the Lord, before his heavenly Father, that brings about a restoration of all things. Mm. And isn't that, that's kind of the... uh... That's kind of the cycle of the judges writ large, isn't it, in terms of human history and right. God's redemptive plan. But what we're waiting for, and we've received now, not just the judge, but the king, the faithful restoration king who will bring about the kingdom that will never end. You know, and that's that's the great hope of this, is that this cycle is something that we're experiencing at a microcosmic level, but it's also kind of the macrocosmic uh, cycle that is God establishing his kingdom, new heavens and new earth through King Jesus. Well, brothers, this has been great having this conversation with you. There's so much more to be said about the book of judges. It's fascinating talking about it in his late bronze context, talking about it as it sets up Samuel. We touched on, on some of that, but there's a whole lot more to say about this historian who's put these books together. Um, but this is a great intro and it's a great way to kind of, hopefully make this book a little more accessible to people who maybe only know it as a series of stories, maybe only know it as the book that the Samson story's in, because as a kid, they remember reading about mm. this strong man with long hair. But hopefully this will give you a little bit of bigger picture as to how this book works, not just what it says, but how it says what it says, to quote Adele Berlin. I look forward to being with you all again next week. Thanks again for your time and for listening to us. If you'd like to know more about Reformed Theological Seminary and hear more conversations like this one, please check us out at rts.edu forward slash Washington. We'd love to have you in class, uh, both as a student or as an auditor, uh, or just find out about some of the events that we've got coming up here on our campus. Uh, please post us questions. If you have questions that we can answer in the future, you can go to the link in the show notes and ask us a question there. Look forward to being with you all again next week. Until then, take care. Okay. Is that good? Great.